Hey, so none of you guys really know me, so before I get started, just a, a brief introduction. Sheridan's right, my name is Josh. Uh, I am married, I have three children, two of them are normal. No, that's rude. None of them are normal. Uh, I've got Jess, Jess is nine, and she is the cleanest, tidiest, neatest kid you will ever meet in your life. When she was five, she wrote her own to-do list so that she could keep a regular morning routine. Who does that? I don't even do that. She was five. And you're like, well, what sort of stuff does a five-year-old have on her morning routine to-do list? She had things like, uh, open my curtains, dress my doll. She had to dress herself, which she did using the clothes that she had folded on her bed the night before. I've never caught her doing it. I'm pretty sure she irons her duvet. Like, her bed is immaculate. She feeds her budgie, and then she ticks off the day on the calendar. And then she's done. And she won't come out of her room until she's done. She is so tidy. She is so immaculate. And I can tell you right now, she does not get that from her mother. That's the truth. <laughs> then, she's not here, right? This isn't being recorded. It's all right. Uh, then I got Harrison, and Harrison is seven. And he is so friendly. He is uber friendly. He is, if he were an animal, he'd be a golden retriever. And he'd be the kind of golden retriever that licks you and hugs you and wags his tail while you rob my house. He's just over the top friendly. Most parents have to stop their kids from saying yes to strangers that offer them food. We had to train Harrison to stop approaching strangers to ask for food. So I can't tell you the number of white nondescript vans I've pulled him out of just before they drove off. He's just too friendly. Uh, and then we've got Darcy, and Darcy is six. And I think the best way to describe Darcy is that she's the kind of kid that God gives you when you think you've aced parenting. You know, like he, he looks down at you. I'm, I'm almost sure this is what happened, that God was looking at me and my wife. He called the angels over and he said, dudes, look at this couple. They think they have aced parenting and now they've got pride. What are we going to do? And I'm sure an angel just came up, pulled out a clipboard and went, we'll give him Darcy. <laughs> Darcy, I don't know what it is about Darcy, but she just has this thing like at a DNA level that no matter what they are or who made them, the rules of life do not apply to her. She's not a bad kid. She just flat out the rules do not apply to me. And according to my wife, that's partly my fault because I have that kind of attitude too. I mean, I just think that rules are stupid. Especially stupid rules. I hate being told what to do by stupid rules. Uh, I was out in your entrance before, and I needed to go to the toilet, which is like 14 kilometers away. It takes so long to get there. And as I was walking all the way, I stopped for a break halfway and then carry on walking. As I walked there, I saw a sign on the wall that said, no running in the hallway. That's a stupid rule. I mean, think about it. If you are on your way to the toilet, and the situation is so critical that you feel the need to break into a sprint, I don't want to get in the way of that. It's not my church, but I would not be legislating against that. I would have signs that say, if you need to run, please do. That's the sign that I would have uh, in my church. I was down in Wanaka a couple of weeks ago uh, visiting some friends with my wife and my kids, and they have this place in Wanaka called the Snow Farm. And it's right across the road from Cadrona, and it's lame. We drive all the way up there, and there's no slopes. It's just flat, and it is a cross-country training area. So there's just all these people going like this with sticks, just around the place. 
But what the heck is the point of that? But they have this little wee dip for kids, and you can hire inflatable tubes, and you can take them up to the top, and then hop in your tube, and then go down. It's like really gentle. Like, I'm not joking. I had to stand in line behind a four-year-old. I was like, this is lame. So I did it a couple of times, and I was like, this is boring. So I said to the lady down the bottom, hey, are you allowed to go down on your stomach? Because the problem is that when you're at the top, you sit in the tube, and your friends just push you off. They have a lady watching it down the bottom. But I thought, you know, if I could go on my stomach, then my mate could hold the tube at the top, and I could get like a 20-meter run-up and just gun it and then leap on top, and I'd be like a bullet out of a gun. You know, I said, can I do that? And she says, no, you can't do that. That's against the rules. I said, why? She said, it's too dangerous. I said, dangerous? Look, there's six-year-old twins holding hands coming down it right now. Like, how dangerous can it be? She said, not allowed to do it. Well, that's a stupid rule. So I went up to the top, and I said to my mate, we've got to go down on our stomach. He said, that's against the rules. I said, it's a stupid rule. <laughs> so we waited until she wasn't paying attention. She went off to like, go to the loo or something. And I said, now's our chance. And so he held the inner chair for me, and I got like a run-up from like, here to the end of the room, sprinted up, jumped on top, pew, down I went. I probably wasn't going that fast. But it felt fast because I'd been going so slow. It's like when you drive 30 k's through roadworks and then you gun it back up to 100. You're like, I feel like I'm going 300 k's an hour. But it's actually just normal speed. Get down to the bottom. They have this little wee snow plow pile thing at the end so that you don't go over the top. I went right up the top, down the other side. And if I was on a mountain, I would have actually had a cool ride, but everything was flat, so I just stopped. Picked up my inner tube. I was like, well, that was better than nothing. And Harrison, my son, came right down behind me. The lady came back out of the toilet, didn't see anything, got away with it. Yeah, go to, go to walk up the stairs, and Harrison goes, my dad just went down on his stomach. I'm like, dude, that is, snitches get stitched, that is not cool. And the lady, because I'm like a full-grown man, she's too embarrassed to look at me, so she looks at my son and says, well, that's against the rules. And I thought, yeah. And Harrison goes, yeah, he knows that, but he did it anyway. <laughs> I'm like, mate, go sit in the car, far out. You know, so, so Darcy kind of gets that from me when she was three. She came into our lounge one day and we didn't cotton on for a while, but Darcy had a bit of a telling the truth issue in that she never did it. Um, and I read the other day that if you've got a kid that lies, then it means they're smart. So Darcy's freaking Einstein. <laughs> Jess never lied. She is, she's the oldest, follows the rules, always tells the truth. Jess could come out and say, Dad, there's a monkey juggling fireballs riding a unicycle in my bedroom. And I'd be like, I've got to see that, right? Harrison, he tried to lie a couple of times, but he doesn't understand the basic rule with lying. If you want to tell a lie, don't tell anyone you learned this at church. But if you want to tell a lie, the secret is commitment. Once you've told it, you've got to stick with it. You listen, kids, you've got to stick with it. You can't, you can't falter, right? And Harrison never had the sticking powder. So he'd come out and you'd be like, Dad, did you do this? Oh, no, I wouldn't call him Dad, I'd call him Harrison. I'd say, Harrison, did you do this? He'd go, no. I'd say, did you? He'd go, ah, do you think I did it? I'm like, I do now. <laughs> I just can never stick to it. But Darcy, flip. Darcy, you do this? Nah. And like, it took us a couple of months before we went, she's not telling us the truth. And so one day she came into the lounge. She's three. This sums her up perfectly. There's sand in the sink. And Liz, my wife, says to her, Darcy, did you put sand in the sink? And she goes, no. She's like three. No. And she looks, my wife looks at me and I look at her. I'm like, I don't know, man. It's a horrible feeling as a parent. You just don't know if your kids are telling the truth or not. You don't want to punish them for lying if they weren't. 
but you really don't want them to know that you don't know. I'm like, I don't know. She says, did you? No. My wife says, if I find out that you're lying, you're going to be in trouble. This little three-year-old looks at my wife and goes, you won't. Like, and I'm like, does she mean we won't find out because she's not lying, or does she already know that we can't work her out? So she is a little bit of trouble, and she gets that from me. My wife is the rule follower in the family. If you want to stress my wife out, go to Countdown, take a piece of free fruit from the barrel that says for kids only. We go shopping, kids take one, kids take one, kids take one, I take one. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what? She says, it's, you can't take one of those, it's for children, you're not a child. I'm like, aren't I? We're like, when, they, when they go with their mum, she lets them take one piece of fruit because it says one piece only. When they go with me, I'm like, knock yourself out. The rule is you can take as much as you want until we have to leave the supermarket. And you should because this is lunch. So that's... <laughs> It's kind of how, how we do things in my family. So that's, that's my family. I don't know if, that's, if I made it better or worse, but now you, now you know me. So I understand that you guys have been working through the book of Luke. You've been looking at the life of Jesus that Sheridan spoke this morning about the woman with the alabaster jar. Uh, and so I'm going to talk about that tonight as well. Um, and hopefully I don't use too much of Sheridan's material. I mean, I listened to the podcast this morning and tried to copy as much as I could, but um, so let's open it up. If you've got your Bibles, you can read along. If you don't, it's all right. I've got you covered. Luke chapter 7, we are in. You guys had a good look at it this morning. Verse 36 says, you know, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, very often when we read the Bible, especially someone like me who has been a Christian his whole life and read the Bible a lot, it's tempting, isn't it, to just kind of gloss over it. It's tempting to not take it in. It's tempting to just sort of not really stop and deep dive into it um, because it happened so long ago and it's not overly relevant sometimes, it feels like. So what we're going to do tonight is I'm just going to change it up a little bit to make it a little bit more relevant for us today. I'm just going to change some of the characters in the story. So tonight, the role of the Pharisee will be played by me. And I will tell you the story as if it just happened at my house today. Make it a little bit more relevant. And Jesus... I think the most appropriate person to play Jesus would be Sheridan Rogers. So Sheridan Rogers is going to be Jesus. And then I thought about who could play the woman, and I decided that would be an unhelpful person to try and place on somebody, because even though Luke tries to be as diplomatic as he can and as sensitive as he can be, everybody knows what kind of line of work this woman was in. In fact, if you read the Passion Translation, it says she was a woman of the night, and then in just in case you're still not sure what that means, it goes on to say, and everybody knew she was a prostitute. So I figured it wouldn't be helpful to pick a woman out and say, and you're the prostitute for tonight. So it's just me and Sheridan and then, and then this woman, all right? But this is, this is honestly how it would have gone down. So guys, I want to tell you a story about what happened at my house today at lunchtime. So I had heard about this guy called Sheridan Rogers, pretty big deal. Got a good church, lots of good people. I hear his ministry's kind of cranking seeing a lot of signs and wonders. And a lot of my friends had said to me, dude, if you ever get a chance to invite Sheridan around to your house, you should totally do it. And I bumped into him this morning and I said, Sheridan, come to my house. And he did. And I was very excited about it because it made me feel important. So I put a Facebook invite out and I let a lot of my friends know that they could come around as well. And so at lunchtime, my house was pretty chocker, filled with people. I'm just sort of showing off that, that Sheridan's at my house. And we're reclining at my table. 
Now, you've got to understand that at my house, I don't eat at dining room tables. That's, I don't do that. I don't sit there with my knees tucked under. No, at my house, we have like a low coffee table, and then I put couches around three sides. That's how we eat at my house. One side is left open so that my servants can bring in, I have servants, so that my servants can bring in food and drink and stuff. And then we, we don't even sit on the couches. Like, we're not peasants. We lie on the couches. And so we will lie on the couches on our sides, and normally we'll have like our arms up and our heads up on like the armrest, and then we just reach forward and we take food off the table. At my house, we don't use plates or cutlery. We're just taking bread, we're dipping it in. I'm crazy about hummus. There's always a lot of hummus in my house, and olives. There's always a lot of olives in my house. So I'm, I'm at my house, just in the scene for you guys, right? And Sheridan and I are getting on pretty good. He seems like a nice guy. I'm pretty stoked to have him at my house. And he got weird, because... Halfway through lunch, this woman turns up, and I don't want to be rude or anything, but uh, we all know, we've all seen her standing on the street corner. And I don't know how she found out about it or why she thought it was okay for her to turn up at my house, but she did. One of my servants came over and he said, did you invite her? I said, no, I didn't invite her. Why would I invite Sheridan and a prostitute to my house? That's a dumb idea. I said, I didn't invite her. And they said, well, what are we going to do? I said, just leave her and let's just hope she doesn't do anything weird. So we left her. Anyway, she comes over to where we're eating lunch and she just bursts into tears. And I don't mean like a little bit of tears. I mean crazy tears. I mean like she's got water coming out of every hole in her face. Tears. And she comes up. She stands right behind Sheridan who's lying on this couch. He's got bare feet, by the way, because I don't let socks in my house. We all wear sandals at my house. So bare feet, they're a little bit dirty. And she comes up behind him and she just starts bawling her eyes. It's like snot and eye stuff and ear stuff. And it comes off her face, so much of it. I don't know if you've ever cried this much. It's like puddling underneath her face, which just happens to be where Sheridan's feet are. Now, crying women make me uncomfortable, but this was just gross. And I thought for sure Sheridan is going to have a reaction to this because if it were me, I would be like, oh my gosh, yuck. But he didn't do anything. He just lay there and kept eating hummus while this woman is doing all this stuff. I was like, I don't know what to do about this. This is weird. Eventually she stopped crying. Thank Godness. There was a cross between thank God and thank goodness. Came out wrong. Well, I started to say thank God, and then I was like, wait a minute, they might think that's like a swear. So I switched it halfway through. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, anyway, she stops crying. You're not supposed to laugh at that, it wasn't the funny part. She stops crying, and I'm like, okay, we're okay. But then she gets down on her knees. Now, this has just happened in my house. Picture it. She gets down on her knees. And she starts wiping his feet with her hair. I have never seen anybody do that in my life. It doesn't work very well, for a start, if you've ever tried to dry anything with your hair. It doesn't work. She just smeared the dirt all around his feet. It was just gross. And I thought then, now he's going to say something. Like, surely he will respond now. But he didn't do anything. And I thought, well, if Sharon's not going to say anything, then I'm not going to say anything. Everybody else in my house is like this. We're all thinking, what the heck is going on? And Sheridan's just keep hummusing, man. He's just hummusing and hummusing and hummusing. He's not, he's not saying anything. I've never, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And then just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, this woman starts kissing his feet. 
Now, time out. Yous all know that, just to be clear, this didn't really happen, right? Like, I don't want to... In case there's new people here that walked in after I started and think this is a real story, I've made this story up. But imagine for a second that this actually happened. I'm telling you this story. I tell you what, every single person in that room is going to work the next day and saying, oh my gosh, guess what I saw yesterday. Like they would be talking about it for eight. I guarantee you that they would never forget that. If I were in a room and that happened, I would never forget that as long as I lived. I would be like, that image of a woman kissing a grown man's feet while she wipes his feet with her hair is burned. I could never get that out. Stuff that nightmares are made of, right? That is how uncomfortable and how weird this story is. And so this actually happened. And then the woman goes on to crack open this this jar of oil, which the Bible says was worth like a year's salary. We find out from another part of the Bible. But we all know how she makes her money. So she's now pouring oil on Jesus' feet, which she bought using money she made by selling her body. And at that point, the Pharisee goes, something's off here. I don't, I don't reckon that guy's the full quid. The Pharisee thinks to himself, I don't think that Jesus is who everybody says he is because he would not be okay with this. And then I love what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus answered him. He hasn't said anything. He's thought it inside his brain. But Jesus answered him. Oh, I just think that's so cool. Uh, And then Jesus goes on to tell him a story, right? You guys know the story because Sheridan shared it this morning. But he says, imagine there's two people and they both owe a guy some money. And in today's dollars, one of them owes him $100,000 and one of them owes him $10,000. And they can't afford to pay it and so he forgives the debt of both of them. Now, which one of those would love the guy more? And the Pharisee goes, well, it's not a hard question. It's the one that got forgiven $100,000. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. And then he kind of compares how the Pharisee has treated him since he came into his home with how this woman has treated him since she came in. He said, you didn't um, wash my feet, which was the polite thing to do in Jesus' day, but she's poured her tears all over me. You didn't give me a kiss when I came in, which is the cultural thing to do. You haven't given me any oil for my head, and she's done all of this stuff. And then he makes this statement. He says that uh, you know, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. I remember reading that uh, when I was younger, and it bummed me out. I remember reading it and thinking, well, that sucks, because that's me. In my opinion, I was someone that had been forgiven little. If you were to take 100 people and line them up in a row from people that were most forgiven all the way down to people who were least forgiven. I was right down this end, if not right on the very end. I grew up in a Christian family. I had Christian parents, Christian brother, Christian sister, Christian dog. Now you're laughing because you're thinking, how does he know that? But my entire life, I never heard him swear. (laughs) Christian dog, right? And... And I was a good kid. I mean, I know that now I'm a bit of a rebel. Like I run in hallways and I slide down slopes on my belly. But back then, I was a good kid. I mean, I've got to make up for lost time now. I said that I'm married. I've been married for 13 years. My wife is my first and only girlfriend. She is the only girl I've ever kissed. 
The only girl I have ever held hands with romantically. The only girl I have ever said I love you to. Now, I know what you're thinking. How old were you when you started dating? Like three? No. I asked my wife out when I was 22. 22 years old. Never kissed a girl. Never told a girl I loved her. Never been in a relationship. Never been on a date. I was a good kid. I don't drink. I've never drank. Once or twice I have sipped a beer to see if I liked it and it was disgusting. So I don't drink. I don't drink beer. I don't drink wine. I don't drink spirits. I don't even drink coffee because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this might be more the reason. If you go out for dinner, a beer is twice as much as a Coke and I'm Dutch. So... You know, why? I, I don't drink. I don't do drugs. The only drug I've ever done, or the only hash I've ever tried, is hash brown. And I'm not even allowed to do that now. Stupid keto diet. <laughs> and the closest I have ever come to smoking was when I was seven. I rolled up some newspaper and lit the other end and sucked in all the smoke and just about killed myself. <laughs> but. I can honestly say I have not smoked a newspaper since that day. <laughs> like, I was a good kid. And, and when I read that verse, I just had this sinking feeling like, that's me. I am the one who's been loved little. But the truth is that I was wildly wrong. I was so wrong. Because I was asking the wrong question. The question I was asking is, what have I done that needs to be forgiven? And then I was comparing my, what I thought, post-it note with everybody else's telephone book. What have I done that needs to be forgiven? The question I should have been asking was, what did Jesus have to do to forgive me? Because that gives a totally different complexion on things. I came here tonight to tell you one thing and one thing only, and that is that there is no such thing as someone who has been forgiven little. That's not the point that Jesus was trying to make in this story. What Jesus was trying to communicate in the story is that our capacity to love God, our ability to love God, the way that we feel towards God is linked intrinsically to our understanding of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That the revelation that we carry of how much God loves us through what Jesus did on the cross will dictate how much we love him. And I remember uh, I met a guy, you guys might know him, he's spoken here a few times, called Daz Chettle. Do you guys know Daz Chettle? Daz, we're really good friends now. But we met for a coffee two years ago, and we sat in this cafeteria, um, and he unpacked for me his story and what God was doing in his life. And he wept. I was so challenged. Uh, and I went home and I said, God, I don't, I don't love you that much. I don't cry about you when I talk about you. I, don't, I just don't love you that much, but I, I want to. And I prayed. I said, God, I want to love you more. I want to love you bigger. I want, I want to be in love with you. Like I want the love that I have for you to changed my life. And I don't know what happened. There was no like instantaneous shift, but over the last two years, 
God has done something in my heart and now I can't talk about him without crying. And all he did was he just piece by piece showed me what he did for me on the cross. What I came here tonight to tell you was that it doesn't matter whether you've done a million things wrong or six. Jesus had to die on the cross to pay for your forgiveness. And, you know, often guys will get up and they'll say something like, it doesn't matter what you've done. And that is so true. But it also doesn't matter what you haven't done. Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the price for your sins. Maybe you're like me and you grew up in church or you know, in your more honest moments when you compare yourself to other people, you go, I think I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm making some good decisions. I think definitely I have less things that need to be forgiven than somebody else. Don't do that. That's what I did all my life. Compared myself to other people and I looked pretty good. Every now and again I got a bad haircut, then I looked terrible. But most of the time, you know, I compare myself to other people, I look pretty good. The only thing we need to worry about is, you know, you know how you work out the value of something? You can, you can work out the value of something by what someone's prepared to pay for it. And the truth is that Jesus had to buy my forgiveness with his life. All the money in the world, all the power in the world, all the authority in the world combined was not enough to purchase my forgiveness. It had to be paid for in the blood of Jesus.